this message, I think, gets more quickly or cuts more quickly to what every church on the planet and every individual on this planet needs more than anything else. Every church, whether it's in times of great fruitfulness or times of trial, really only need one thing. It all boils down to one thing. We need to perceive. We need to behold. We need to be utterly captivated by the supreme beauty and infinite greatness of Jesus Christ. That is what we need. To perceive him in all of his beauty, to behold his infinite greatness, and to be utterly captivated by who he is, what he has done, and what he's yet to do in our lives as his disciples. And every day, whether you are aware of it or not, there is a war going on in your soul over what will captivate you. And you are being chased down, not only by the Spirit of God, like we sang about this morning, but you are being chased down by the enemy, the world and your own flesh, to distract you from the glory of Jesus Christ with smaller glories. And it's a war, my friends. I don't know what it looks like in your life. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's YouTube. Maybe it's drinking. Maybe it's Facebook or Netflix. Everything in this world is against you beholding the glory of Christ. Distracting you from seeing how infinitely beautiful and satisfying he is. And this morning we're going to look at some verses in Romans to do what I hope will stir in your heart fresh love, fresh passion, fresh zeal for Jesus Christ being your Savior. We're going to look in the book of Romans. We're actually going to skim over three chapters this morning, but we're going to begin in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where we see the, the theme of the book. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at our horrible situation that we find ourselves in. And then the glorious rescue that Jesus provides for us. So that we can behold him for who he is. If you look in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this is the theme of the entire book. If you have a paper Bible, I would encourage you to box this in. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous, righteous shall live by faith. So what this book, what Paul does from here on out, 16 chapters, is he unpacks those two verses. He wants you to see that God has revealed a righteousness in Jesus Christ that you can experience by faith that will allow you to behold him in a way that puts everything else in its proper place in your life and in this church. Let me just say this. Your eardrums will never vibrate to greater news than that. Never. 
There is no greater news. So the question for us this morning is, when you hear that in the gospel, God has revealed a righteousness that can be experienced by faith, does your soul soar when you hear that news? Do affections in your heart begin to stir and rise to the surface as you hear that God in the gospel has revealed a righteousness that you can experience by faith? At times, my heart does stir with affections when I hear those words, and at times, my heart doesn't. And what I found is the X factor in whether or not my heart is riveted with joy over that news or not is the degree to which I realize I need the righteousness that Jesus provides. The more I realize it, the more my heart is thrilled. The less I realize it, the more my heart is thrilled by other things. So this morning, this is what Paul does in this book. He ends with this really good news, verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he tells us bad news from verse 18 all the way through to chapter 3, verse 21. Bad news. So he pushes the pause button. He gives us good news. The righteousness of God has been revealed. And then 18 through 321, he tells us some horrifying news. You and I have a horrifying problem terrible problem. If you look at verse 18, that's what Paul says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What I want you to notice from this is, is this. If you look at verse 17, look there with me. What is revealed in verse 17? Somebody tell me. Righteousness. Righteousness is revealed in verse 17. What about in verse 18? What is revealed in verse 18? Wrath. What Paul is doing is he's saying, look, in order for you to really see how great Christ is and how much you need his righteousness, you must see that something else has been revealed. Not just righteousness being revealed here, but wrath has been revealed. Things are are being revealed here. God's righteousness in the gospel is being revealed and God's wrath against unrighteousness is being revealed. And he's showing us both here. This is a double revealing. And Paul wants us to hold up this bad news in order to glorify the good news. He wants to see how bad the bad news really is so that we will rejoice in the good news in the way the good news should be rejoiced in. God wants us this morning to see the horrifying news so that we may magnify in the glorious news. So let's talk about this horrifying problem. He goes into detail here. Look at verse 20. Actually, go back to 19. He's going to explain to us here. We're going to see seven ways that we are in bad shape. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So unrighteousness comes because people suppress the truth. Now he's going to tell us how we do that. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, God is invisible, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. See what happened? What was invisible has now been perceived. How? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without 
excuse. So the very first problem that we have as humans is that in creation we perceive what God is like and then we suppress it. We stomp it down like a jack-in-the-box. You crank it and up it pops and what do we do? We slap him down. We don't want his supremacy because we want our supremacy. We want to reign. And so when we see his greatness in creation, what man does is press him down. He's going to tell us more. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or glorify him as God. In other words, we didn't praise him like he was worthy to be praised or love him or cherish him or treasure him or savor him the way that he was worthy to be savored and treasured. Or Look what it says next. Give thanks to him. Paul is trying to help us see. God is trying to help us see the, the trouble that we're in. We do not give thanks to God. Anyone able to identify with this? Why is it that when I'm stuck in traffic, I will complain about the traffic rather than thanking God that I even have a car in the first place? Why? Because I don't thank God. Very simple. Right here. Wrath is revealed because we don't thank God. Then he transitions. Paul gives us three ways that we exchange God's glory for something else. Let's keep reading. Giving thanks to him. This is the second part of verse 21. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the first one. Exchanged the glory. We are glory exchangers, my friends. Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We love creation more than the creator. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they, here's the second exchange, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Two exchanges. Verse 26 gives us the third exchange. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with a passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Three exchanges, three ways. Humans exchange. God's way for our way. God for something God created. We take the things he created that were meant to magnify him, to glorify him, to point to him and his power and his beauty. And instead we exchange it. Instead of worshiping and treasuring him, we go after the things that he created. So many illustrations we could use for this. Marriage is one, right? God created marriage to be a pain of a picture for it to be a living dramatization of how Christ loves the church. Yet every conflict we have destroys that picture. We exchange it. Every time men, we don't love our wives as Christ loved the church. Every time women, you don't respect your husbands the way that the church is to respect Christ. We distort the picture. We, we rob God of glory. We exchange what should glorify God for what we want to glorify us. In verse 28, he Gives us one more piece of the puzzle here. I mean, this is the seventh one. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he gives us a list here. We didn't see fit to acknowledge God. 
We forget God. Verse 29, here comes the list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Here's the all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, do, they not only do them, but give approval to those who do. So much can be learned from this just about the human heart. Take time to, to study this. We need to be really practitioners of our own hearts to know that it's more than just I'm a sinner, but there's clear categories here of how we exchange the glory of God for other things, which is why we all fall short of the glory of God. Because we would rather see other things ourselves magnified or glorified than Jesus Christ. And these are the things, according to this text, that bring about the revealing of the wrath of God. What I want to do is, I'm visual, so I learn in visual ways. But I want you to have a picture this morning of you and of me. And for this just to represent all of the things that I just shared with you. All those ways that we exchange God's glory for our own ways. And you and I, whether we admit it or not, or realize it or not, are all covered in sin, in shame, in rebellion, in self-glorification, in God-denying. It's a horrific situation. Mankind is in deep, deep trouble. And Paul goes on to tell us that because of this, he says the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. It's there. It's being revealed because of our sin. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. Paul shows us three ways in the book how it's being revealed. I'm going to show you one this morning. If you look at verse 24, he tells us, therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity and to the dishonoring of the bodies of the body among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. I hear Christians say, and even people who don't know Jesus, the world sure is getting a lot worse. If you're as old as I am, and maybe you remember when you were a kid, you didn't see the stuff happening in the world that we see happening today. We say, man, it's, things are unraveling. Things are getting worse. Yeah, they are. Do you know Why? Because God is giving us up. He's giving mankind up over to their sinful desires. That's how his wrath, my friends, is being revealed on the earth right now. We sin. We want to sin. He says, okay, I'm going to let you go and sin more. He removes his restraining grace and he's letting society go. Why would someone shoot children in a middle or an elementary school at Sandy Hook? Why? Las Vegas shootings. Why are ch children mistreated? Abortion. Why, why is gay marriage pretty much accepted everywhere? Why? Because God is letting us go. You want to sin? Go for it. And God's wrath is being poured out as he releases individuals and societies to explore and take full advantage of every sin they want to commit.
And it's only going to get worse. I hope you have this biblical category for when you watch the news and you see the things that are happening. We live in a fallen world, yes, but God is also letting this fallen world go. It says in chapter 2, verse 5, that not only is he pouring out his wrath on us now, but verse 5 of chapter 2 says, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So not only is God letting his wrath come down on us now, basically by letting us go into our sin, but he tells us that one day there is going to be a day of wrath. A day of wrath. A day where it says men and women and children will literally literally try to hide themselves and ask for rocks to crush them rather than peer, rather than look into the eyes of the Lamb of God. It's going to be terrifying. Terrifying. On that day of wrath, when God pours out all the wrath that is being stored up for those who do not follow him. And in case you and I decide to get a little bit arrogant, he adds in chapter 2, verse 1, a little warning. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What a warning for us. Even as God's children, lest we turn and start to judge people who are being turned over by God's wrath to pursue their own sin, lest you and I say, oh, look at them. Paul includes all of us in it. He says, don't judge. You do the same thing. When he says the same thing, he's just referring to those verses at the end of chapter 1. All those same things, covetousness, envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, boastful, pride, <laughs> inventors of evil, evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless. He wraps us into it and he says, be careful. Don't start judging people that are running crazy with their sin. It's because God's wrath has been poured out and he's letting them go. You do the same thing. Be careful lest God let you go too to explore your sin to the fullest extent. Paul goes on in chapter 3 to really make sure that we get the picture. Familiar verses in chapter 3, verse 11. I love the way Paul makes sure that every one of us are in this. Chapter 3, verse second half of verse 10. None is righteous. None. None. Not some. None. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together and have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He's quoting from a psalm. Pretty repetitive, don't you think? No one, not one, not one, not one, no one. Except me, of course. No, not one. Then he goes on to tell us why. Your throat, everything that comes out of you, your throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. All the stuff that comes out of our throat and through our lips 
is rebellion against God. And then he talks about our actions in verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is painting a very gloomy, hopeless picture. It is bad. And it's not just bad for some people. It's bad for everyone. It is bad for all. Paul wants us to have a clear picture of who we are in our sinfulness and that we are not righteous on our own. He closes this section out with a little conclusion in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, and those who try to be good with their works, so that every mouth will be stopped. The whole world will be held accountable to God. The whole world, the whole world will be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being will escape the wrath of God because they were good enough. Because somehow their good outweighed their bad on their holiness scale. 4 verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You cannot justify yourself. And then Paul turns in verse 21 to the good news. He kind of returns back in verse 21 to where he left off in verse 17 of chapter 1. And he brings us right around now. He wants us to really spend hours in this middle section feeling the weight of our unrighteousness. Getting a really clear picture of how we are worthy of just one thing, and that is his wrath. The only thing we've earned is his punishment and justice. And that's it. So after 64 verses on the unrighteousness of men, we turn the corner in chapter 3, verse 21, and Paul says, but now. But now. You ever wonder what your life would be like if that wasn't there? (laughs) What if it wasn't there? What if there was no but now? And it just ended. You're screwed. All of you. But it doesn't. And when you read these next little line, you read, but now, it's supposed to thrill your soul. It's supposed to amaze you. This, this but now is meant to rock you to the core. You should see yourself as clothed in filth, an object of wrath, on death row, ready to die, eternal punishment in your future. But now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from you trying to be good. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, 
For there is no distinction. He's going to remind us again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to to be received by faith. Good news, my friends, good news. (laughs) Some have said that this little section of verses, specifically verse 23 and 24, or 24 and 25, are the greatest verses in all of Scripture. <laughs> Memorize them. Some have said maybe just verse 24 is the greatest verse ever and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And some have said, if you want one word, justified. Justified. Do you know what justification is? I... I I administer church discipline to people at my church if they do not know what justification is. <laughs> justification is two things. It's two sides of a coin. Justification is you first being forgiven of all of your sins. You must be forgiven. If God is going to declare you righteous, which is what you need, you need to be declared righteous. You must first be forgiven. It's got to be gone. You've got to be clean. And you're not. You're filthy and there's wrath coming. You've got to get clean. You must be justified. But once you're clean, you also need to be clothed in righteousness. You've got to have the good stuff. It's not enough just to not be sinful. You must be cleansed, but then you also must be clothed in righteousness. That that is what justification means. It is two sides of a coin, my friends. You must be forgiven and you must be clothed in his righteousness if you are going to escape the wrath of God. And don't ever, oh, if there's anything that you need to get, don't ever confuse your justification with your sanctification. Don't get them mixed up, my friends. Sanctification is this process that you and I walk through every day where we behold the beauty of Christ, and he transforms you to look more like him and to act more like him. And it will go on forever. Justification is not a process. Justification is one and done. You are not more justified today than you were the day you were converted. And you won't be more justified next week than you are today. You are justified, forgiven, clothed, But your sanctification will always be changing. You will be growing, but don't mix them up. And you will never grow in your sanctification until you are anchored in your justification. Otherwise, you're going to spend your life trying to earn God's favor, to earn God's forgiveness, to earn God clothing you by how good you behave. You know, we don't realize how bad our good works are. You think he's impressed? Wow, you read your Bible today. Yeah! Come on. You're justified. You've been forgiven and you have been clothed. And he tells us how this happens. Verse 24, he says, it is by grace. We are justified by his grace. In other words, you cannot earn it. You've been justified by grace. By grace. By grace. You cannot earn your justification. 
And he adds to that, we are justified by his grace as a gift. You can't pay for it. As soon as you pay for a gift that somebody gives you, it's not a gift anymore. It's the opposite of the way the world works, right? You want something from the world, you better work for it or pay for it. This is not God's economy. God's economy is grace, gift. Justified. Grace, gift. I'm going to give it to you. Righteousness and justification are both about you being right with God, but not because you in some way have earned it. That's why he says in chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being can be justified in his sight. You can't do it by your own works. Then how do you get it? If I can't get it, I can't earn it. How do I get this justification that he's talking about? In verse 24, he tells us it comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means to, to purchase, to buy. He, he bought it for you. Jesus paid for it. He himself was a ransom for your sin. He paid the wages of your sin, which is death, so that you could escape the wrath of God for all the ways that you and I suppress the truth. We don't honor God. We glorify ourselves. We don't give thanks. We exchange the glory of God for created things. We believe lies, and we fail to acknowledge and treasure Christ the way that he is worthy. So our justification is free for us, but it was not free for Christ. It's not free. It's costly. Your justification cost Jesus his dignity and his, he was put to shame. It cost him relational separation and pain. He was beaten so you could be redeemed. We should have paid for it, but he paid for it instead. And then he tells us that verse 25, that he was put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, big word means he's our wrath remover. He's absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. So to complete the picture this morning, Jesus was born sinless, and he lived his entire life sinless. He never committed a sin of omission or a sin of commission. You know what that means? It means he never committed any sin. He never lusted. He never lied. He never slandered. Never cheated. Never robbed God of glory. But he also never did anything that would omit the positive things the law requires. He loved the Lord your God with all of his heart, all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. He cared for orphans and widows. He did everything that God's word says you should do, and he did it perfectly all the time. And then as he, as he hung on the cross as that perfect sacrifice, Scripture says that he took on himself all the sin of mankind, your sin and my sin, and he bore it all in his body on the tree. And as he hung there, he experienced all the judgment and justice of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us. The sky grew dark, right? Temple veil, veil in the temple broke in half. When the sky grew dark, it says that God poured the cup of his wrath down on Christ. He bore it all. The wrath that was screaming down for you and on you for your sin 
not only for today, but for all of eternity, was diverted to Christ as he hung on the cross. He bore it for you. All of it. So he drank the cup dry. So none is left. None is left. So here you are. Forgiven. But you're morally neutral. You're lacking the good stuff. So what does Christ do? It says that he clothes us in his righteousness. Or to finish the verse in 1 Corinthians, I think it's first, might be 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be sin for us, so that when we're in Christ, we'll become the righteousness of God. Do you know that verse? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you and I are clothed this morning in the righteousness of Christ. Do you think there's anything you can do on planet Earth that will improve the righteousness of Christ that you are clothed with? (laughs) I mean, that's good news. And is there anything you do that you think is going to remove the clothing of Christ's righteousness? (laughs) Nothing can remove it. So when you are justified, my friends, this picture needs to come to mind. I have been forgiven. I have been clothed. The wrath of God has been diverted. I am now righteous and justified in Christ. And beware of us trying to add to his righteousness. Because when you and I try to add to Christ's righteousness, all we're doing is putting our filthy rags back over the top of his righteousness. And that's how you need to picture it. Your best work is polluting his righteousness. That should totally change how we think about living each day. I want to live in the freedom of Christ's righteousness. Not trying to earn anything from him. And live in the good of the justification that Christ has earned on my behalf. Christ is your propitiation. He is your righteousness. And 22 more times in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, he uses the word faith and believe. It's how you get it. You believe it. You have faith in it. I know you as a church went through the book of John, the gospel of John, and so did we. If there was one thing that stood out from the gospel of John, it was that believing is not praying a prayer. Believing is when you look at Christ in his glory and you say, yes, that's what I want. It's when you behold Christ, you treasure Christ, you love Christ, you want him more than anything else. That's believing. And when Christ becomes your everything and your all, he becomes your substitute. He becomes the one who takes all of your sin and all of God's wrath and then clothes you in all of his righteousness. That, my friends, is the beauty of the gospel. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's to say, I want to enjoy and savor and treasure and walk with and love my Jesus more than anything else on this planet. That's what it means to be a disciple. So where are you this morning? Where are you living? If you've been converted, genuinely born again, are you savoring the one who converted you? 
Is your soul thrilled over the one who took your place and clothes you in his righteousness? Or perhaps you've been converted and you're wandering, you're drifting, you're savoring other things. Maybe you're trying to prove to God you're somebody by how you behave. Maybe you live in depression and discouragement and despair because of your sin. And you've forgotten that you have been justified in Christ. That when God sees you, he sees you as if you are Christ himself clothed in his perfection. Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus. Maybe you come this morning and maybe you've been to church a lot and you think church is about rules. Be good, you go to heaven. Be bad, you go to hell. If that were the case, we'd all be in hell. It's only one way, one way. Savor Christ, trust Christ, believe in Christ, love Christ, pursue Christ. Ask him to clothe you in his righteousness. Ask him to be your substitute. Ask him to take your place. Ask him to forgive you and clothe you in his righteousness. It's the only way. It's the only way for heaven. It's the only way for freedom on this earth. Unless you live the rest of your life trying to prove yourself to you and God and others. So be free this morning. Be free. Church, be free. Be free. If in any way, something other than this has become the center of your life or this church, repent. That means turn from it and run to God. (laughs) Run to him and say, I want this more than anything else I've been making the center. And may this church enjoy that. Enjoy this. Be free. Be free in Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for what you've done. Forgive us for all the ways we get distracted on this earth from what you have accomplished for us. Forgive us for the ways that we think that we can somehow earn from you something we could never earn. Thank you, Jesus, for your love and your compassion and your mercy. Thank you this morning we can be forgiven and clothed. Lord, I pray for any in this room who believe that your love for them is based on how good they behave. And I pray you'd set them free from that, help them to realize that your love for them is not based on how good they are, but it's based solely in the work of Christ. And Father, I pray for those in here who don't know you. I ask that you would open their eyes to the beauty, to the glory, to the praise of Jesus, and that they would want him more than anything else. Lord, protect us as your people from all the other things that can captivate our hearts and captivate us with Jesus instead, I pray. Bless this church. Pour your spirit down on each member and on this group collectively. Help them to have Christ as everything. May that be the healing, unifying, joining together factor in this church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.